Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and legacy of the Roman Emperor Hadrian and we'll be finding out why he was so interested in building the famous Hadrian's Wall. We'd love you to join our discussion. Just send us a text 53106, that costs 30 cents, or you can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Last week, we looked at Cary Grant and the making of a Hollywood icon. Find out how, com- how China went communist in 1949 and what impact it had on the world and we also discussed Isaac Newton's later career and if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows just go to our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on the Roman Emperor Hadrian and on Hadrian's Wall. Born in the year 76 AD, Hadrian became emperor in the year 117 AD and over the next 20 years travelled extensively around the empire. Hadrian ended Rome's territorial expansion, marking clearly the boundaries with the famous walls of Hadrian and was also notable for attempting to make Greek culture more prominent in Roman life. Although hated when he died in the year 138 AD, in later centuries Hadrian was praised as one of Rome's five good emperors. And so in tonight's show we want to assess his life and his legacy. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Mary T. Boatwright is Professor Emerita of Classical Studies at Duke University in the United States and is an expert on Roman history. And her books include Hadrian and the City of Rome and Hadrian and the Cities of the Roman Empire. Dr. Andrew Fear lectures in classics at the University of Manchester and is an expert on the Western Roman Empire and the Roman army. Dr. Alexander Thane lectures in the School of Classics at UCD and is an expert on Roman Republican history and the topography of Rome. And his most recent book is Sulla, Politics and Reception. Dr. David Breeze is a leading British archaeologist and expert on Roman frontier studies and has written extensively about Hadrian's Wall. Professor Richard Hingley of the Department of Archaeology at Durham University is an expert on the Roman past and the archaeology of the Western Roman Empire. Well, you're all very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Dr. Francis McIntosh, creator of Hadrian's Wall and the Northeast for English Heritage. Well, Mary, we might begin with you and a general question or a big question about Hadrian and his reputation, because... I see some scholars over the centuries and some writers have really praised Hadrian as one of the good emperors, one of the five good emperors. Others have been more critical of him. So uh, where does he stand in terms of his reputation today? Uh, Great question. I think I was asked, um, was he the goat, the greatest of all time in the question sent to me? And, um, of course, no one person could be the greatest of all times. There were a lot of positives that Hadrian was responsible for, as much as any one person could be responsible for the whole Roman Empire. There were also some real negatives that he was responsible for, most importantly, the Third Jewish Revolt from 132 to 135. Probably in balance, when you think about the 16 million people in the Roman Empire and um, ease of mobility of all different types, social, economic, um, physical, political. He was probably one of the greatest ones. And in fact, I think the, the just the sheer achievement of mostly peace during his 21-year rule was a great thing and and lingered on for the his successor Antoninus Pius. So he he's mixed but um I think certainly a better emperor than um some of the some of the the others whom like Nero, sorry. <laughs> And and Mary, his rise to the top, because I saw that he he seemed to have quite a rapid rise and then there was a pause and then and then it, his, his rise continued again. And I wondered how much was down to his own natural abilities, his brilliance, how much was down to these personal connections that he had? Well, everybody in the Roman world had some personal connections. Everyone who made it had some sort of connection with somebody higher up and preferably someone connected with the emperor. And of course, he was distantly related to Trajan. Trajan, in fact, was his guardian after uh, Hadrian's own father died when Hadrian was only nine or ten. 
But I do think that he was also a kind of, I won't call him a survivor. I think he was very canny and he knew when to not make waves. And um, so he has some idiosyncrasies from when, before he became emperor, but in general, he had a very accelerated and solid a military and civil career, as you say, and he continued up. I don't see where he ever had a time where he was not really in um, in positions of authority. Um, and when I think about his idiosyncrasies, I think being in the archon of one of the archons of, of Athens when in 112, very unusual, not unique, but somewhat unusual and kind of presaged his love for Athens and for um, what we think of as the Greek East. So he was out of the limelight, I think. And of course, you may be referring to this uh, idea that Trajan never, his, his predecessor and his guardian, one time guardian, never actually designated Hadrian as what we would say the heir apparent. And that really put a, um, that really marred his accession to power, at least among the senators at Rome and the um, people who write literature and wrote literature. And it's interesting, Mary, I've heard him described or I've seen him described as Hadrian the Restless. Uh, people are fascinated by this idea that he travels so much around the empire, consolidating things. And and it's, he seems to have had that fascination with uh, the areas that uh, were under the control of Rome. Yes, but also the edges. I mean, we do know that he went up the Nile. We know that he went to the Euphrates. He was very interested and he spent a lot of time up on the Danube and on the Rhine. So he was also interested in the the edges. I think of him as um, somebody who just had an omnivorous curiosity about nature, about art, about history. Um I will say that uh, he was also a perfectionist and not maybe the person I would want to spend a long dinner party with because he'd be interested in showing me how smart he was. But um, but certainly he would, if somebody said something to him, he would want to find out more about it. So, um, so he did have this kind of restlessness that may have been, although I don't want to psychoanalyze him, but may have been tied to some um, some need not to be second, some need to be the first. And that is a very characteristic um, aspect of the Romans. One could think of Julius Caesar. Fascinating. Alex, he spent quite a lot of time out of you know, what's now Italy and uh, I think more than half of his time travelling around. What was the, the purpose, do you think? Was it curiosity? Was, there, was he interested in expanding the empire? Was it about consolidation? What was the motivation? Um, I think if we're talking about the travel, um, a lot of it is about good government. It's this idea of um, seeing the, the empire, seeing who you're governing, uh, talking to people in the local towns. Um, and one other thing that I think is important for um, Hadrian is the way that he presents himself or imagines himself as having some very clear models in Roman history. One of them is the Emperor Augustus, the first emperor, um, who also spent a lot of time outside of Rome. So um, in that long period after um, Augustus establishes his position as emperor. He spends a lot of time in the West, in Spain, also um, in the East, um, on the borders of the Parthian Empire. And some of it is to purposely absent himself from the city so that his system can bed down. And Hadrian, in some ways, is following suit. So um, that idea of going out there, in a way, um, avoiding the city, in part because uh, there were some issues about the way that he uh, came to become emperor. Um, this uh, story that his adoption by Hadrian was signed by, uh, sorry, by Trajan was signed by Trajan's wife um, on Trajan's deathbed. So these are all motives for him to uh, go abroad. Um, one other thing just to uh, remember is that his family was from Spain and uh, there are stories that when he first 
um, spoke to the Senate for uh, Trajan, um, he was. Uh, it was noticed that he spoke with some, something of a, a Latin Spanish accent. So, in some ways, he is from the provinces, and um, that's one of these big, uh, broader social cultural shifts that we can see in this period. Uh, that we have the provincial emperors emerging for the first time, Trajan, and then Hadrian. So it's fitting in a way that he does spend a lot of time travelling. Andrew, it's it's fascinating the way people still are inspired by all of these these elements of, of Roman history and to do with the Roman Empire. And I, I think you do a lot of uh, history tours bringing in, bringing to life uh, the travels around what's now Spain and Portugal and Italy and Britain and so on. Why does the Roman Empire still inspire people and why do people want to follow in the footsteps of these great Romans? Oh, I, I think lots of people have different ideas, but maybe perhaps the, the, the most important one is, is just the sheer physicality of the Roman Empire. I, it is a period which has left very spectacular remains. I mean, not just things like Hadrian's Walls and tough military stuff, but of course there's that enormous legacy of mosaics and, and more cultural artefacts as well, which... Um, in a way, I think, you know, when we, we think about later periods, we mustn't do them down. There's, there's lots of good stuff there as well. But just as um, an outpouring, if you like, of, of achievement, um, I, I think the Roman Empire is something which people look to still as, as an inspiration for our, you know, for our own culture. And there is just so much of it at the end of the day. And the variety of it is, is equally, I think, important. You know, we, we've got Roman toilets, we've got Roman central heating, we've got Roman mosaics, we've got Roman fortifications. So in a way, curiously, there's a little bit for everyone, isn't there? And that brings us then, I suppose, to uh, the thing that in this part of the world, Hadrian will be most uh, remembered for, and that's the famous Hadrian's Wall. And I was wondering, maybe, Davis, you might be able to talk to us about uh, what we know about why it was built and how important it was. Well, I, can I just first say I, I absolutely agree with Andrew. I think one of the most important aspects of Hadrian's Wall today is its visibility, um, and, of course, relatively ease of access. So you can still go to see it today and be literally awed uh, by, by it, it is, its visibility. Um, there's a long history of research on Hadrian's Wall. And so uh, this is another reason for its importance, but it uh, enables us to uh, offer quite a lot of information, information which we're still developing about the history of the frontier. We can see that it was originally planned to be a long wall, half of it, just over half of it of uh, a really stout, thick stone wall, nearly 10 Roman feet wide, but part of it was of turf, which we're still grappling with. Uh, along it were defended gates every mile with towers in between. And then in the middle of building that, the whole plan was changed, thrown upside down, as it were. And f new forts were built on the wall line itself, which is totally unique. This happens on no other frontier. Um, and uh, something like uh, perhaps a third of the Army of Britain is on the move to provide new regiments on, on the wall line. And as a result, the building of the wall goes on for a long time. Uh, and uh, this this is, as I said, still e exciting for the archaeologists because um, we haven't dug up that much of Hader's Wall, perhaps 5% of it. There's still a lot to know about it and there's still a lot of new discoveries coming to light such as a couple of decades ago pits which presumably held some sort of spikes um, on the space between the wall and its ditch um, totally new never seen before and now we're finding them elsewhere and there'll, there'll be something new so it's got a lot to offer um, to both visitors and to um, and, and to the archaeologist and specialist Alex, those who watch Game of Thrones will immediately think of the big wall there. But of course, that was to keep certain things out that I suppose the purpose, the size and all of that. But yet, it, some of the imagery is, is the, the, the idea is the same and, and possibly, I suspect, might have even inspired uh, George R. R. Martin when he was, when he was creating it. 
Um, yeah, that's something that I've found out quite recently. Um, just to um, refer listeners to the source for this, um, there's an online journal called Unheard. Um, Ed West wrote an article in there in April called How Game of Thrones Saved the North. And what he was trying to talk about was how we think about Northern England, how we think about English history, and trying to sort of uh, reorientate history to look at it from the top down rather than from the bottom up from the south. And he sort of interprets Game of Thrones as doing that, as giving a sort of imagined fantasy version of English history from the north down, thinking about the House of Stark as as the Percy's in Northumberland. Um, but he did actually say that uh, George R. R. Martin was visiting England, Hadrian's Wall, in the 1980s, um, and that he was inspired by this uh, for the book manuscript that he then submitted for publication in uh, the early 90s. So the way that Ed West describes it is, um, you know, that he's standing on Hadrian's Wall, darkness drew in, he looked north and wondered what it might have felt like to be a Roman legionary, many of whom came from old cities based in the Mediterranean sun. Um, here they stood, staring into the darkness of Caledonia, not knowing what terrors existed beyond the vast cold wasteland. So this is the then where the, the story comes from, uh, sort of tied in also with uh, Scandinavian myth. Richard, it's very interesting to look at the archaeological evidence, and I wonder what can we learn from that about what Roman Britain was like, and indeed, can we even learn from that what uh, the, how successful the wall was in terms of uh, defence, in terms of commerce, in terms of migration, and all these other factors? Yes, thank you. Um, the wall is built in the 120s, and by this stage, Britain is actually um, already uh, dominated by Rome. The south has been conquered from AD 43, and the Romans move into um, northern Britain by the 80s. So the wall is actually sort of a fallback to a, a, a sort of easily defendable line for the Romans. And to the south, by the 120s, we have um, an urban civilization starting to develop. So when the Romans come into Britain, they come across um, these communities which are quite decentralized and uh, have a long-term agricultural economy, and they're very well established. The Romans tended to call them barbarians, but we don't see them that way anymore. They were well-established people who probably lived a lot of the time in a fairly peaceful environment with trouble from time to time. The Romans bring large-scale um, de- I mean killing on a very large scale. Anybody who opposes them is uh, pursued in uh, conflict and uh, either submits or is wiped out. People who side with them and are allied to them actually become uh, supporters of Rome and pay tax and give um, conscripts to the Roman military. And the Romans establish um, or help to establish an urban system in the south, which is quite, quite a stable thing which the frontier, when it's established in the late 1st century AD, helps to protect. So we get a, if you want, a civilization or a society across what is now southern England, or the south and east of Britain, which is based on towns and villages and large-scale, um, large-scale agriculture and profit and trade. The frontiers are very different because they're controlled by the military, and um, the military have a series of forts, as we've heard from David, along Hadrian's Wall, and also in the um, hinterland of Hadrian's Wall. And here we have a military society, which also has a civil element, because the families of the soldiers live close to the soldiers in their forts, and traders come to settle. But we really have two landscapes, a sort of urban-based landscape in the south, and this military society in the north, and also to an extent in North Wales in the West, and um, if you want, the frontiers uh, protect this southern area through time, and Hadrian isn't actually the first to establish the frontier, really. He builds this monumental wall, but by the time he builds it, we already have soldiers based in forts and roads, and this area is already under close Roman protection and control, so he monumentalizes it considerably. And then we have, effectively, almost 300 years in which the frontier serves 
people further south. So all these things about trade and commerce and society um, develop largely because Rome imposes its control. And, and, no, Rich, and, and sorry, Richard, for interrupting. And it's interesting that Hadrian himself also comes to Britain in, 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 in 122 AD. So he's one of those emperors who gets as far as Britannia and he's there interested in, in seeing the extent of what's going on. That's correct. He's actually the second Roman emperor serving to visit Britain because Claudius comes in AD 43. So Claudius um, actually commands the invasion, the initial invasion of Britain. And Hadrian is uh, literally the second serving Roman emperor to visit Britain. Vespasian also came to Britain as part of Claudius's invasion force, but he wasn't emperor for several decades after his visit to Britain. But of course, what's fundamental here, we've heard about Julius Caesar already. Julius Caesar had also been to Britain, and the emperors are sort of vying, if you want, in their traveling and their conquest and Hadrian actually gets further north you know his successors Julius Caesar famously only reached the southeast of England as it is now the southeast of Britain Claudius conquers his forces conquered the southeast Vespasian's occupied in the south Hadrian gets further he gets right up to the frontier uh, in central Britain the line of Hadrian's wall we believe we don't actually know that because our classical texts are so incomplete. We do not have a record of where Hadrian went to in Britain, but uh, he must have toured the frontiers because, as we've heard previously, he was touring frontiers in all the provinces he went to. Mary, Mary, I'm getting a good sense of the ambitions of Hadrian and how successful he is in, in, in developing these projects. And what's interesting is that it's not just outside of, uh, of Italy that these projects are taking place. There's also quite incredible building projects in, in Rome as well. For example, you have the Temple of Venus in Roma. Uh, I think he does a renovation of the, the Pantheon. Like the, that there's, he's, he's definitely putting his mark on on the empire uh yes he definitely is and um and it's in very um subtle ways i think in rome because there had been the if you will the legacy of domitian um who in his his um his rule of rome from 79 until his assassination uh, sorry from 81 until he was assassinated in 96 had built more and more and seemed to have, everything seemed to have his name on it. So part of what uh, his his successors did was be much more humble. And again, in this, I think Hadrian was following Augustus. You don't want, Hadrian knew absolutely, and I think in part from his civil work and also from his military work, that he had to work with other people among the elite. He had to have them believe in what he was doing and opt into it. And this was all the more important after the messiness of when he actually arrived in Rome in 118 and four ex-councils were killed in very murky circumstances. And of course, Hadrian said, oh, I had nothing to do with it. It really, I would never have done that, but it really marred the beginning of his reign in Rome. So he did a lot of building in Rome. He was attentive to other things that don't leave as big an impression, but are really important for the life of people there, paying attention to the Tiber banks. Um, building a dike in the central campus marshes to make sure that there wouldn't be as much flooding, which allowed, of course, renovation of buildings that had been flooded out there. And um, so he, um, he, his, he built in the center of Rome, this traditional center around the Forum and the Imperial Forum, like Trajan's Forum and the Temple of Peace and but he also built and uh, the mausoleum of Hadrian across the Tiber in the Vatican area. He also did some work up in the northeast of Rome that may have, I sometimes think about it as decentralizing Rome itself. So, um, so saying we're going to be opening it up, much as what he has did in the provinces 
through his uh, careful building and careful attention. Yeah, it's interesting what you say there about his his political manoeuvrings. He seems quite good at when bad things happen that suited him. He was he was he was very good at uh, disclaiming any responsibility, even though uh, they advanced his his cause. So he seems to have been quite clever at kind of maybe behind the scenes arranging things in a way that would suit him best. Yes, I think that that's uh, perfectly right. He he um, paid a lot of attention to being accessible to all, to going to when senators would be ill, he'd go and visit them at their homes. When he would go through, we have stories from Cassius Dio that he'd go into the bathhouses and and people, his older, his his veteran soldiers would recognize him and speak to him and he could remember their names. He would speak to people when they uh, stopped him in the street. There's a wonderful story where a woman stopped him in the street and he said, I don't have time. And she said, stop being M for them. And then he turned around and spoke with her. So um, he was very accessible, but I think he also was somebody who um, made his own decisions. And we see that in so many of the stories where he's climbing Mount Etna and doing things his own way. He's got his uh, lover Antinous in his entourage. And um, when, when Antinous dies, Hadrian so-called wept like a woman. Um, so he was both um, in the milieu and also had an identity apart from it. And I think that that's part of his great achievements. Very good. And we might explore more about the the, the interest in, in Greek culture and Greek civilization as well um, in, in a little bit. Andrew, we're getting an awful lot of texts in on 53106 from people who want to know about life on Hadrian's Wall. I wonder, did the, the you know, a text here, for example, someone wanting to know, did, did Roman legionaries have to, to guard it every day? And were the, were the conditions challenging? And how much have we been able to reconstruct about what exactly they experienced on the wall? Well, I, th- I think one thing we, we, we should start with, really, is is a, a, a cliche which um, pops up in lots and lots of things of these poor, shivering Italians uh, sitting on the edge of Scotland. Um, the legionaries, as far as we know, and, and again, as, as has been pointed out, our, our actual records are thin on this, but, but in terms of uh, inscriptions that have been left, um, the legions in Britain built the wall but by and large, they didn't manage. I mean, there's a whole other half of the Roman army called the Auxilia, uh, much smaller units, uh, people who aren't Romans, um, but they join up because they, if they stay with the army for 25 years, they will turn into Romans when they're discharged. And most of these lads are from the north of Europe. So we're, we're looking at people from the north of France, um, Holland, to use modern countries, things like that. So in many ways, I think um, the cultural shock would not have been as great. I mean, it is, it is the case that some people were from much further afield, but the majority of people are from Northern Europe. So in that respect, I think that, you know, they, they wouldn't find the environment particularly challenging. In terms of what soldiers did day by day, um, again, our evidence is not fantastic, though um, what we should look at towards, I suppose, uh, is the site called Vindolanda, which lies just behind Hadrian's Wall and is just earlier than Hadrian's Wall. But we've got bare records of soldiers going out on patrol and things like this. Uh, perhaps the biggest issue for us here is that Hadrian's Wall has, of course, a whole sequence of little watchtowers and, as has been mentioned, gateways through the wall. All of those would have needed to be manned. Whether, on the other hand, there was a walkway on the top of the wall, uh, that soldiers actually walked up and down on, um, is up for grabs. I mean, we have no evidence in terms of no part of the top of Hadrian's Wall has survived. Uh, and people argue about this personally. I don't think there was a wall walk on the top. I think people stuck in these watchtowers. That was part of their duty, but probably patrolling out to the north of the wall was part of their duty as well. Um it would have been a hard life, I think, but perhaps sometimes we exaggerate that by sort of dwelling on the, the, the rather cliched notion of Roman soldiers coming from, from Italy all the time and being very cold in these environments. Whereas I, for many, I think 
it um, it would have been, if not home from home, very, very similar to home. David, that's very interesting there, what, what we're hearing, because if this was a, a movie about Hadrian's Wall, there'd probably be attacks every every 20 minutes or so and big battle scenes. But I suspect things were probably quite dull and and, 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 and straightforward on it. Or, or is it the case that perhaps we just don't know because there are things we'd like to know, but, but just don't have enough evidence? Well, that's certainly true. I mean, we do know that there was the very early 180s, um, the the northern tribes, we're not even told the names, crossed the wall that divided them from the Roman forts and killed a senior officer and his troops. So we know of that, and we know in the 4th century uh, that uh, in the about 305 and uh, 360s, there was such serious trouble in, in northern Britain. Uh, north of the wall, uh, that it brought uh, the, the emperors to the island. Uh, but they, these were uh, very far apart. Well, one of the great advantages of studying the Roman Empire is that we can take evidence from analogy. Now, other parts of the empire, that is. We do know, we have about three inscriptions from Hadrian's Wall itself, which record activities beyond the wall. Um, a group of Coriotonai, who we don't know anything more about them, uh, were, were defeated, for example. So we've got these three inscriptions, which are really about raiding more than anything else. And we can see from all the other frontiers of the Roman Empire, uh, this was fairly common. Uh, raiding by all sorts of people beyond the frontier, what they were after is another matter. Slaves, captured slaves, um, animals, um, just for the sheer hell of it if they were young, perhaps. Um, difficult to tell always. Uh, not conquest, usually, uh, but um, ra- raiding um, to to get something off the empire uh, seems to be uh, the best answer we can produce. Um, but uh, for a lot of the time, the soldiers on the wall um, in the Mar castles and turrets, as has just been said, were probably rather bored, as most Roman armies are. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Most armies are um, be- between the irregular bouts of serious fighting. Very good. And Andrew, uh, do we have a sense of, uh, from this, do we have a sense of uh, maybe the military dimensions of things as well do we get a sense of uh we we know about his previous military experience but do we get a sense of how effective this was in terms of the roman army well i think um as david's just said i mean one of the things that is interesting is we don't have a lot of evidence for serious incursions across hadrian's wall so i suppose in that sense uh, you might say that it, it was fairly effective. On the other hand, I mean, another very interesting thing, I think, is to remember that, you know, not so long after it was completed with the new emperor, Antoninus Pius, there is a surge back into the lowlands of Scotland. So you know, the Romans spend an awful lot of man hours building this very complex structure, uh, which I think, again, we should remember isn't just the line of the wall, but there's the, the idea of all the little watchtowers goes down the northwest coast as well. Um, but by um, the beginning of the, um, the 140s, the Romans are back in the lowlands of Scotland um, and hang around there for another 20 years or so. And in, in some ways, it's quite interesting. Um, you know, could it be the case that Hadrian's Wall is a tactical success? Um, but maybe there's a long-term strategic problem that um, the real problems Rome faces are a little bit further away um, and that the Emperor Antoninus Pius thinks that um, there's a need to, to resolve those problems. Uh, if that's the case, of course, it didn't go, it didn't go well uh, because the Romans are back on Hadrian's Wall by um, the early 160s. Um, but by and large, I think it's fair to say that the wall through the period exists is broadly speaking a success I mean, there, as, as David said there aren't um, good pieces of evidence to say that there are regular uh, incursions across it 
Richard, it's interesting the way in in recent years, Walls got a bad name thanks to President Donald Trump. And uh, during Trump's presidency, there were various pieces written, some by by right-wing groups calling uh, Hadrian's Wall a policy statement and wanting uh, Trump to do something similar and uh, uh, inviting him to study Hadrian's Wall. That uh, There definitely were attempts by some to draw uh, direct parallels between them. Yes, there were. I think it's a New York Times actually suggested that Trump had um, learnt about Hadrian's Wall at school, and his inspiration for building the wall was um, derived from his education. And I, I don't know whether that's true. I think it's very easy to look at major um, monuments like Hadrian's Wall and look for inspiration in later structures. And um, we've have we've have a whole series of frontiers built in the. Uh, 20th century in various places that may be partly inspired by Hadrian's Wall. The modern world is very, very different from the Roman world, obviously. And I think if there's any comparison between what Trump was trying to do with this immensely long frontier and uh, the Roman frontiers, it would be with the frontiers of the Roman Empire, not Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall is only 80 miles long. the Great Wall of China or Trump's Wall, you know, these are immensely long things. And Trump's Wall was never completed. Who knows if he'd had six years or longer, uh, he might have actually built more of his wall. But it wouldn't have been continuous. It would be such an immense activity building a, a fortification of any scale along that massive frontier between America and uh, Mexico. And, you know, I, I do think we need to be aware of how different the modern world is. However, the Romans, as we heard at the beginning, are used as exemplars and models by people in post-Roman ages. Uh, Classicists tend to call this reception. People take knowledge from the past and they use it. And I think in modern society, American presidents have often been compared to Roman emperors. Um, You know, I think it is worth thinking about some of those parallels. People tend to do it to be critical. Now, I wonder to an extent there's been some discussion of which Emperor Trump might resemble. And I think on the whole, people wouldn't look to Hadrian because, again, as we heard earlier, Hadrian is usually seen as a a fairly positive emperor, but he wasn't like that much of the time. Um, If we want to think further about emperors, there are plenty of emperors who have far worse reputations that we might imagine. Um, Perhaps I shouldn't speculate any further about that. Very good. We'll have to do an entire show on the Roman connections uh, uh, with Trump. Although I think I would, I would be willing to to, to put money on the fact that uh, Trump did not get Trump was not a very uh, uh, distinguished student of his Roman history in school, and he probably did not get the idea from there. We'll take a quick break now, and when we come back, I'll be talking to the creator of Hadrian's Wall. Talking history, history. on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life and legacy of the Roman Emperor Hadrian. And at this point, we're going to talk about uh, Hadrian's Wall because it's one of the uh, the things that I suppose he's most remembered for, certainly in this part of the world. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Francis McIntosh, who's creator of Hadrian's Wall and the Northeast for English Heritage and is an expert on the UNESCO World Heritage Site. Francis, you're very welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. How big was Hadrian's Wall? How much of it remains? So uh, when it was built, it was 80 Roman miles long, which is about 73 modern miles. And it runs from Bowness and Solway in the west through to Wall's End in the east, which is just east of Newcastle. And um, you can still see the line of it almost the entire way, but obviously um, there's not re- upstanding remains all the way along. But there is still really quite large amounts um, remaining to be seen, particularly in the central sector where it's a lot less built up. Obviously, the urban areas cover over a lot more of it. And what was the intention? What was the purpose of it? Oh, million dollar question. What did Hadrian think it was for? What did the Romans think it was for? Who Nobody really knows. It's probably a multitude of things. Um, Hadrian was known as a consolidator. You know, he wasn't one of the expansionist emperors who was going around you know, um, occupying new territories. So um, the wall was a one way of marking the northwestern edge of the empire um, at his time of the reign. It was a huge statement. And it was really visible, you know, across the land. So it would have made a massive impact on the people that live in there. It controlled movement. Nobody thinks that it was there to 
completely stop any movement in and out because there's um, gateways to the mail castles and the turrets, but it would have controlled movement definitely. Um, so it was a way of, um, you know, keeping an eye on who was coming into the empire and who was going out. Maybe it helped with taxation purposes, um, bureaucracy. The Romans loved a um, good bit of bureaucracy and administration. It'll remind some of our listeners of the wall in Game of Thrones. And I think it mm-hmm. it inspired George R. R. Martin. And uh, there wasn't a, a night watch there, but there was a garrison uh, uh, on the wall. And this all played into him when he was creating his epic fantasy. Yeah, that's right. Um, he went up to Housesteads, which is one of the more famous forts that many people visit. It's up on uh, the top of um, what we call the windsill, which is a dramatic escarpment he went up there and was imagining soldiers in the forts the 16 forts along Hadrian's wall that were occupied uh, by soldiers manning the wall and he went up there and was imagining life on the wall and that's what um, inspired his yeah his ice wall the Roman wall Hadrian's wall was maybe about four and a half meters high so a little bit smaller than his ice wall but um, still as I said really imposing in the landscape and you know soldiers did live there for long periods you know possibly for their entire career um, maybe stayed on afterwards. So there are, you know, generations of soldiers and their families living, working and then dying on the wall. There's a wonderful new museum and exhibition space at Corbridge Roman Town. And I, I know that uh, uh, English Heritage has, has, you know, I think it's 150,000 items that were found in excavation on display. Can you can you tell me about some of the artefacts that are there and and I suppose exactly you know what we're learning uh, by all of this 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 excavation work yeah so English Heritage looks after four paid to enter sites on Hadrian's Wall um, there's Bird Oswald Chester's Housesteads and Corbridge and Corbridge is just two miles south of the wall and it's actually a Roman town as well as a fort it's a little bit different and it has our biggest museum um, there aren't 150,000 objects on display. Um, as with any museum, there's a very tiny percentage on display. So there's maybe 800 objects on display um, and a huge amount more um, in our store. So it was a real tricky decision to pick what went on. But if you come to the museum at Corbridge, we're really trying to tell the story of the non-soldier, and particularly people living in Corbridge in the Roman period. Corbridge is the most northerly town in the Roman Empire. It's on a crossroads north, south and east-west, a really important point um, and um, played a huge role in supplying Hadrian's Wall. So we're trying to tell stories about trade and um, production and everyday life, what people might have eaten, um, you know, the pots they used, the gods they worshipped, how they commemorated their dead, um, you know, that whole aspect of life that's not just about Roman soldiers, you know, fighting for the empire. There are some inscriptions on the wall. What do they say and how much can we learn about the, the society and life at the time uh, from them? So the inscriptions are an absolute, you know, goldmine of information. If you're really interested in inscriptions, Chester's Museum is a great place to go. We've got huge numbers of inscriptions to different religious gods and goddesses or deities. So those inscriptions tell us all about the beliefs of the Roman soldiers and the people living around Hadrian's Wall. And then there's something called centurial stones. Now, Hadrian's Wall was built by soldiers, by groups of soldiers uh, who were part of the legions, and they um, were given sections to um, build in each century. And they often then marked on a stone that they had built that section. So these centurial stones are the names of the centuries and usually the centurion who's in charge of that century. So we've got names of soldiers who actually built the wall, and then from the inscriptions such as the altars or um, the um, building inscriptions for other buildings. We have names of other soldiers who worked and lived on the wall. So they tell us a huge amount. And finally, uh, when the pandemic finally lifts and we're able to travel again, uh, if our, our listeners travel to visit some of Hadrian's Wall, uh, what section should they visit? Well, if you've only got time to do one visit, I would suggest going to Houses Roman Fort because you can go up and you can see the most completely excavated fort on Hadrian's Wall. There's a museum. And then from there, you can go for a walk along and see a mile castle. And it's the most dramatic part of the site. Um, but really, you need a good few days to explore the wall properly. OK, well, Francis, thanks so much for joining us. Dr. Francis McIntosh, creator of Hadrian's Wall and the Northeast for English Heritage, an expert on the UNESCO World Heritage Site. And uh, thanks so much, Francis, for uh, bringing Hadrian's Wall to life for us. Not at all. Thanks for having me. We'll be back with more on Emperor Hadrian and his legacy right after this break. Talking History on News Talk.
Well, welcome back to Talking History. Tonight we're talking about the Emperor Hadrian. Uh, we focused an awful lot on his famous wall and a huge amount of text coming in about the wall and a lot of interest in that. A brilliant panel of experts, Professor Mary Boatwright, Dr Andrew Fear, Dr Alexander Thane, uh, Dr David Breeze, Professor Richard Hingley and before the break there we heard from Dr Francis McIntosh. Uh, Mary, fascinating what you were saying about, uh, was it Ant- Antin- uh, Antinous? Uh, because the Greek element is something that has fascinated people as well. Oscar Wilde was was very interested in this in 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 this lover of Hadrian and the fact that Hadrian, I suppose, had such a, a fascination himself for Greek culture, for Greek civilization, the way he looked up to Athens. That this was something quite distinctive and different. I think. Yes, I mean the Romans always uh, the elite Romans knew Greek and spoke in Greek and could t- conduct dip- diplomacy in Greek from the third century BCE on. So it was, I mean, to be to be an educated person, also women knew Greek uh, among the elite. You had to know Greek and could converse in it and write poetry in it. But Hadrian seems to have um, been particularly um, interested in it. I mean, in part, it's because the ancient sources love to contrast emperors, and so Trajan is always portrayed as this kind of stolid imperialist. Everybody liked him, a good guy, but, you know, down to earth. And Hadrian was derisively called Graeculus, the little Greek, uh, so we hear from the ancient sources, and, um, you know, wrote in Greek and and um, may even have composed some of his his decrees in Greek and uh, and loved Athens. He visited it, I think, three times, spending uh, as emperor, and he also spent time there before he was emperor, and um, was he was responsible for recreating a kind of panhellenic identity called the panhellenion which he helped to sponsor and was um and attracted greek communities from northern africa to uh the islands to asia to peloponnesus to achaea um so yes he was uh, very well known for that and um and I think that he was proud of it. I think his aesthetics were very refined and um and he it was part of his identity. Uh, David has texted, or oh, sorry, Stephen in Dublin has texted in on 5306 to ask about Hadrian's villa in the southeast of Rome. And uh, is there any evidence for whether Hadrian spent much time there? Is Do we know for certain that this was uh, something that he would have constructed? Well, he certainly is, is, it dates to Hadrian's period, and it's built over land that was, uh, had belonged to Sabina's family, his wife's family, and he seems to have been there when he was in, uh, in Italy, except at the very end of his life when he was down in Baiae on the Bay of Naples when he was so ill. Um, but he does seem to have spent time there and, and, um, and it's a law it's a very large beautiful expansive area um with lots of different pavilions one might think with water with places for of course the slaves and the dependents who ran it um but places for him to get away from it all um it's a it's an enchanting place and i think that he um he liked it too and Mary, near the start of the show, you did mention the the return of conflict, uh, uh, the, the the Roman Jewish War, the Second Roman Jewish War, and uh, he seems to have been quite ruthless, Hadrian, in how he suppressed uh, the uprising, and and uh, we get an ex- we get a good example there of of the kind of ruthless approach to any kind of dissent. Yes, and that's something that we heard about about uh, earlier when talking about the conquest of Britain. Um, yes, it's a, I've, this, the conflict with the Jews is something that has troubled me all the years, all the decades that I've worked on Hadrian. And, um, it seems almost certain that he actually instigated it by changing the name of the, of the city from, um, from its original name to become Colonia Ilia Capitolina. 
and to he seems also to have um, forbade Jews from being in their city. Of course, it had been devastated in the first Jewish revolt when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. But still, people had come back and lived there. And, and so he seems to have precipitated this. He, he forbade circumcision. Um, the legion that was in the in the area put up an emblem that had a boar on it, you know, a, a swine. Um, it could be nothing more offensive. And uh, and then when it went into revolt, it was a, it was a terrible terrible um, rebel rebellion, and um, we know that he almost met his match. Bar Kokhba was uh, a excellent excellent leader and um and it devastated the area and and devastated many villages and towns many people died both on the roman side but certainly on the jewish side so it was horrendous so alex the sense i'm getting of hadrian is is certainly of a more ruthless uh, devious figure who's able to manipulate things to get what he wants what would you see as his greatest legacy um, I thought maybe I'd start with a little bit about his personality. And we've been hearing about how he spoke to people in the streets, how he recognised his own former soldiers in the baths. And we do have um, a nice uh, passage from one of the biographies, which is talking about how he is very much um, um, a soldier's general. Um, this comes back to what we were talking about when we were thinking about boredom. How do you train the army? How do you make sure that they're battle fit? And um, the story we have is that he tried to improve on discipline. Um, he made sure that he didn't have any luxury items himself. Um, it says no gold ornaments on his sword belt. Um, he, he marched with the soldiers. And listeners might be um, uh, tickled to hear that he also ate the same food. And we're told that was uh, bacon, cheese and uh, vinegar. So that's a little bit about Hadrian's personality um, at the end, um, when we think about legacy, one of the things that I like about him, and it ties him with what we were just hearing about his Hellenism, his love of Greek culture, is he was the first Roman emperor to uh, have a beard, uh, not just on campaign, but also on his portraits. And all Roman emperors for the next hundred years have beards uh, following Hadrian. Okay, well, that's a different perspective as well. Uh, time has beaten us, but I think it has been a very interesting exploration of Hadrian, his life, his legacy, and uh, a good amount of time spent on the, the famous Hadrian's Wall that we'd be very familiar in this part of the world with as well. So my thanks to my brilliant panel of experts, Professor Mary T. Boatwright, Dr. Andrew Fear, Dr. Alexander Thane, Dr. David Breeze, Professor Richard Hingley, and we also heard from Dr. Francis McIntosh. That does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My Thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll bring you a short history of Russia, discuss the misalliance between Nazis and leading members of the German nobility, and bring you a story of madness, tragic passion, and the curse of inheritance. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History, history. on News Talk.